Hey guys, and welcome to Radiology Core Exam Review. This is your host, Mohamed Halaiba. We're less than two days away from our test, so this is really a special review episode, and it is much longer than prior episodes, and it is focusing on extremely high-yield and confusing topics, especially MRI and MRI artifact, and then I go to talk about some confusing ultrasound topics as well as x-ray radiography, mainly focusing on detector contrasts and geometric and electronic magnification and how they affect the Kerma and Kerma area product. It's important to listen to my most recent prior episode, which talks about my experience about the exam and the practice test and the advice I give. In summary, you can only use one monitor, and if you take a break and your computer logs you out, you will be logged out of the system, and that will continue your break timer, and you have to rescan your ID and re-enter the exam if your computer logs you off. So do not log off, use only one monitor, and make sure if you take a break, you come back quickly before your computer automatically logs you out. And the last tip is the default calculator that they have in the system actually uses radians then degree as a default. So if in case we have to measure or use cosine and sine, make sure you switch it from radians into degrees. If after you take the exam, you find that this podcast has helpful or was not helpful to you reviewing and studying for the exam, please leave us a feedback or email me. And if you do find it helpful, it's extremely important that you rate us and rank us and review us and reach out to us and give us your experience about the exam so we can share with each other how we felt about the exam and hopefully benefit the upcoming classes. My contact information is in the show note, but just in case, my email is M-H-A-L-A-I-B as in boy, E-H at gmail.com. Again, M-H-A-L-A-I-B-E-H at gmail.com, or you can reach us through Twitter and uh, give us your feedback. Thank you. What makes physics and particularly MRI physics difficult is that it is really complex topics. And many people, including exam writers and myself, don't understand it in entirety or do not even understand it enough to delve into minutia. But some exam questioners will go into minutia and thankfully those questions should not break or make someone's exam, meaning hopefully it will be one or two questions throughout the entire test, and hopefully it'll be thrown out by filtering process. And that's why MRI is really difficult. As radiologists, we don't experience it every day. We mainly study for it for the test and may or may not see it in our daily lives but we're expected to know it and know it very well. And I've noticed some resources will say contradicting things. Another point is that some resources will use different names and it really makes it very, very hard to know it because there isn't really one recommended resource that is ideal to learn this topic. 
Without any delay, I've did a significant amount of research, cross-referencing, looking at different question banks for the most common artifacts that are mentioned and the way they were answered. I discovered that some of them have contradictory answers in different question banks, and I came up with an explanation that would consolidate both answers, and hopefully they will not ask these questions or give these multiple choices in the actual test. To begin, I will mention the artifact, I will mention what direction it's in, and how we can improve it. So first, I'm going to talk about chemical shift artifact. This is chemical shift of the first kind. It is in the frequency encoding direction. We can improve chemical shift through increasing receiver bandwidth. We can improve it by decreasing the native magnetic field, or B0. We can improve it by decreasing the voxel size, and that's where it gets confusing. We can improve chemical shift of the first kind by decreasing the voxel size. How we do that? If we decrease the voxel size where the voxel will only contain a fat element and not fat and water, then we will be able to have the fat resonate and the water resonate in two different pixels, and we will not get this artifact. Another way we can improve chemical shift artifact is to make the pixel bigger, that uh, the voxel bigger, that it will contain both the fat and water and contain some extra space that even though the fat and water are resonating at different frequencies, their resonation will still be contained within that voxel size. Again, if we decrease the voxel size where it's small enough to fit only one, either fat or water molecule, then we get rid of this artifact. Or if we make a single voxel big that it has extra space to contain both water and fat that also would decrease the artifact. If we use fat suppression, obviously we would not get signal from fat, so we would decrease chemical shift of the first kind. And finally, if we decrease the field of view, what does decreasing the field of view do? Decreasing the field of view while keeping the matrix size the same, it will make the voxel or the matrix smaller. Because remember, if we're talking about a monitor, let's say, a square monitor, and this monitor is made up of 20 by 20 pixel, each pixel on that monitor will have a certain space. If we decrease that size of the monitor, but still keep the number of pixels the same, each pixel now will become smaller. And that's the same thing that happens when we decrease the field of view, but keep the matrix size the same. Each of the voxels now will become smaller. Again, to improve chemical shift of first kind, which is a frequency encoding direction artifact due to resonance of water and fat protons at different frequency, we can improve it by increasing receiver bandwidth, decreasing the native magnetic field, and using fat suppression. Now, controversial is we can improve it by decreasing the voxel size and or increasing the voxel size. Now, I said decreasing the field of view will also improve it because it will decrease the voxel size. Next, we're going to talk about susceptibility artifact. Susceptibility artifact happens at 
interface of different materials, so bone and air, air and soft tissue, and so on. It happens in the frequency encoding direction, and susceptibility artifact can be improved by increasing receiver and transmitter bandwidth, decreasing the field view, increasing the acquisition matrix size, so making the pixels smaller, orient the phase encoding gradient along the same axis as the susceptibility gradient, and this is what we do when we do the butterfly cuts of the sinuses, use SCE sequences. Obviously, the susceptibility artifact is prominent in sequences that omit the 180-degree refocusing pulse, so we're talking about GRE sequences. If we use SCE or spin echo sequences, which have 180-degree refocusing pulse, then we will take care of the susceptibility artifact. If we reduce the echo time, we can improve susceptibility artifact. And if we use proper shimming, we'll improve susceptibility artifact. Again, susceptibility artifact is in the frequency encoding direction. It is improved by increasing the receiver as well as the transmitter bandwidth by decreasing the magnetic field strength, by increasing the acquisition matrix size. When we say increase the matrix size, that means we're making the pixels or voxels smaller. We can use a spin echo sequence, which has 180 degree refocus and pulse. We can orient the phase encoding direction or gradient at the same axis as the susceptibility gradient. And this is a technique used when we're doing sinus MRI. We can improve it by reducing the echo time and we can improve it by using proper shimming. Now, previously we talked about chemical shift artifact. When we say chemical shift artifact, we're referring to chemical shift of the first kind. Now, both chemical shift artifact and susceptibility artifact can be improved by increasing receiver bandwidth. What do we mean by increasing receiver bandwidth? It means we're using a wider receiver bandwidth. Again, increasing receiver bandwidth, same term as wider bandwidth. Both chemical shift and susceptibility artifact are improved by increasing the receiver bandwidth and by decreasing the magnetic field strength. Next common artifact that we're going to talk about is the truncation artifact. Truncation artifact is both in the frequency and the phase encoding direction, and it is improved by increasing the number of phase encoding steps and improved by increasing the matrix size. Now, we said we increase the matrix size either by making the field of view smaller or by increasing, physically increasing the matrix size. What is the downside of increasing the matrix size? Compensation for increasing the matrix size while keeping everything the same is decrease in signal to noise ratio, which we're not gonna cover now because we're two days from our test. Again, increasing the matrix size and increasing the number of phase encoding steps will improve truncation artifact. Next and the last artifact we're going to talk about in this segment is the wraparound or aliasing artifact. Now, the wraparound or aliasing is in the phase encoding direction. 
and it can be improved by exchanging the frequency encoding direction with the phase encoding direction. Remember, the phase encoding direction is always the shorter of the axes, either the X or the Y, it doesn't matter. Whatever is shorter or has shorter field of view will be termed phase encoding axis, and that's to enable faster acquisition of the image because phase encoding is the slower of the steps in obtaining an image. So you always set the shorter of these axes in the phase encoding direction. Well, if you have wraparound or aliasing, which means the phase axis is too short than you would like, if you switch the frequency and the phase encoding direction, now you increase the field of view in the phase encoding direction, which will improve aliasing or wraparound. Instead of switching axes, you can just basically plainly increase the field of view. And when we talk about increasing the field of view, we're increasing the field of view obviously in the phase encoding direction. We can apply a pre-saturation pulse to the areas outside the field of view. Let's say you do not want the arm uh, in the field of view. You can pre-saturate tissue at that area, so pre-saturation pulse outside the field of view. You can oversample of data outside the area of the field of view, or you can use an anti-aliasing software. Again, wraparound or aliasing artifact is in the phase encoding direction, and it is improved by exchanging the frequency and phase encoding direction, or by plainly increasing the field of view, or applying pre-saturation pulse. And finally, algorithm changes through anti-aliasing software. Since I compared the most common artifacts, now I'm gonna go and talk about each of the artifact in more details. Truncation or Gibbs artifact. Again, truncation or Gibbs artifact. It's basically bright or dark lines that appear parallel to borders of abrupt signal intensity change. And it is due because the signal has not decayed to zero by the end of the acquisition window. And it is most prominent at high contrast interface. It is due to insufficient sampling, either in the phase encoding direction or the readout direction. The readout direction is the frequency encoding direction. Again, readout means frequency encoding direction. Where do we see it? Typically, it's seen with overcalling a spinal syrinx. So in the spinal canal, the spinal cord has the central canal, which has fluid, and that interface change, it can exaggerate or cause us to overcall a syrinx in the spine when there is no syrinx. Again, truncation artifact guide us to overcalling a syrinx. How can we improve it? We can improve it by increasing the number of phase encoding steps or increasing the matrix size. When we increase the matrix size, we're making each of the voxels smaller, which will decrease the signal to noise, but it will improve the resolution. Let's talk now about susceptibility artifact. We already talked about it previously, so I'm not gonna dwell on it too much. Susceptibility artifact is caused by ferromagnetic substances or substances where there is interface change, meaning if we're at the air, so at the sinuses, you'll get susceptibility artifact. If you have air bubbles post-surgery or if you have metal post-surgery, that will cause susceptibility artifact. Now, it is in the frequency encoding direction. It is associated 
associated with gradient echo sequences because in gradient echo, we omit the 180-degree refocus and pulse. So T2 star, the WI, GRE sequences, this is where we see susceptibility artifact. How can we improve it? We improve it by decreasing the field strength, so the native magnetic field, increasing the receiver, as well as the transmit bandwidth by orienting our phase encoding gradient along the same axis as the susceptibility gradient. This is called butterfly cuts. Using a spin echo sequence, reducing the echo time, increasing the matrix size. We said when we increase the matrix size, we essentially increase the number of pixels, which will allow to separate uh, the fat and the air, for example, or soft tissue and air or soft tissue and metal. So that will improve. So again, increasing acquisition matrix size, downside of increasing the, down, uh, the matrix size is decreasing signal to noise ratio, but increasing the matrix size will increase the resolution. Finally, using of proper shimming will improve the susceptibility artifact. Now let's talk about chemical shift artifact of the first kind. So chemical shift of the first kind, which is an actual artifact. And this is the result of difference between the processional frequencies of protons in fat and water. The difference in frequency is interpreted by the computer as difference in spatial localization. So the computer will assume that the proton from fat and proton in water are actually in two different pixels, and the outcome is giving us the, that artifact, which is the dark band on the side of the image. Again, this is in the frequency encoding direction due to spatial misregistration, similar to phenomena to the intra-slice phenomena, which can be seen in the spin echo sequence. How can we improve chemical shift artifact? We talked about it before, but I will mention it again because it's really important. We improve it by increasing receiver bandwidth, by decreasing the magnetic field, by decreasing the voxel size, so both fat and water at different, uh, within different voxels. Some resources mention this as the correct answer. Other resources actually mention this as being the wrong answer. So I would be very careful in choosing that, but I've seen two different resources calling it correct and another resource calling it wrong. So for example, Board Vital states that chemical shift artifact of the first kind is actually worsened by using a small voxel size. And then Rad Primer, on the other hand, says that decreasing the voxel size will actually improve chemical shift of the first kind. And it's because of what I explained. If the voxel is so small that you have only one fat proton and one uh, water proton, they will both resonate in different voxels, so you will not get that artifact. Now, the problem is when the voxel is just the right size where both water and fat are barely fitting in it and they both resonate at different frequencies. We also can improve it by increasing the voxel size. If you can imagine if the voxel size is so big that both fat and water can resonate freely without leaving the pixel or voxel border, then we're not going to get that artifact.
We can also improve it by using fat suppression or decreasing the field of view. Decreasing the field of view will decrease the pixel size because remember we said if the field of view number of pixel is constant, if we decrease the field of view, then each pixel will have to become smaller within that field of view in order to maintain the same number of pixels. So voxels become smaller when we decrease the field of view. Now we're going to talk about motion artifact or ghosting artifact. Obviously this is like the name says, it's an artifact because of motion. It can be due to pulsatile blood flow, it can be due to breathing, it can be due to disoriented patient that they're moving their head. Where do we see it? We see it in the phase encoding direction because this is the slower of the phases. So frequency is very fast or readout is very fast and the phase encoding direction is really slow and that's where we see it. How do we see it? If it's respiration, then you see it, the chest moving up and down. The example they like to give is of breast moving up and down as the patient breathe. Another example is pulsatile aorta or aortic aneurysm or intracranial aneurysm moving in and out of the field. Remember, this is in the phase encoding direction that movement have will take place. Let's quickly talk about wraparound or aliasing. We talked about this before. This is when you have structures outside the field of view. It occurs when the image field of view or the phase encoding view is small where there is anatomy outside. And we can improve it by exchanging the frequency and encoding direction and frequency and phase encoding directions. We can just increase the phase direction or phase encoding field of view. We can apply pre-saturation pulse. We can over the sample of the area outside the field of view, and we can use anti-aliasing software to improve this artifact. Zipper artifact is an artifact related to either are off pulse or equipment failure, and it is due to leakage of electromagnetic energy into the magnetic room. So the door is left open, there is a ventilator, or there is a defect in the cage surrounding the shielding or the uh, surrounding the MRI. And what do we see? We see one or two pixels that extends in the frequency encoding direction throughout the series of the image. Again, it's in the frequency encoding direction, so it is the longer axis, and we see it as one or two pixels. Sometimes we see it as a straight white line of pixels in the frequency encoding direction. It's a classic appearance, so if you see one image, you're not gonna miss it. Obviously, there are much more MRI artifacts, but I'm not going to talk about them. There is a good RSNA paper called MRI Artifact Safety and Quality Control that you can read about it. There are a few online resources that you can read about, but I don't think it's time to read about any of these resources at this moment because we're two days from our test. What are the key properties of chemical fat suppression pulse? Things we need to know that it's a 90 degree saturation pulse, which precedes the excitation pulse without associated slice select gradient, meaning this is not for a specific slide. Again, the fat saturation pulse is a 90 degree 
saturation pulse prior to the excitation pulse without any slice select gradient. This pulse can be followed up with additional pulses that would improve or called spoiler gradient pulses. Now, remember that the RF excitation pulse that gives us the image is a 90 degree pulse and that it's followed by a 180 degree refocusing pulse. And for inversion imaging, the pre-pulse is 190 degree pulse. Again, inversion is 180 degree pulse. Sorry if I said 190. 180 degree pulse is for inversion. The image excitation pulse is a 90 degree pulse. The fat saturation pulse is a 90 degree pulse. And the refocusing pulse in SE or spin echo imaging is a 180 degree pulse. What are the effects of decreasing receiver bandwidth? When we say decreasing receiver bandwidth, that means we are actually making the bandwidth narrower. So narrow receiver bandwidth will cause improved signal-to-noise ratio. It will increase the readout time, so increasing the imaging time. It will also increase metal artifact and increase or worsen chemical fat suppression. Now, again, I'm talking about narrowing or making the receiver bandwidth smaller or decreased, which will increase signal-to-noise, increase readout, but it will cause worsening or increase metallic artifact, and it increases chemical artifact of the first kind. Let us now shift gears and talk about ultrasound. What factors determine the lateral resolution? Now, Remember, we're not talking about the axial or the elevational resolution. We're talking about the lateral resolution. And this is the ability to distinguish two points perpendicular to the depth of the field. So not, you know, two points on deeper levels like the axial resolution is. We're talking about two points adjacent to each other. So it is determined by beam width, transducer frequency, so higher lateral resolution for higher transducer frequency. Density of scan lines, obviously higher scan lines improves lateral resolution. And axial position relative to the focal spot. Again, it's improved by narrow beam width. So the narrower, the higher res the resolution. Increased transducer frequency. Density of scan lines, if you increase the scan lines, you improve the lateral resolution and the position relative to the focal spot. So the closer it is to the focal spot or focal zone, the better the lateral resolution. A tricky question that can be asked about improving aliasing on spectral Doppler ultrasound. Three things that can improve aliasing. The most common answer is increasing pulse repetition frequency. And you have to be careful when we say increasing pulse repetition frequency, they can also change that and say decreasing pulse repetition period. Both of these terms mean actually the same thing. Again, pulse repetition frequency is one over pulse repetition period. So if you increase the pulse repetition frequency, same thing as decreasing pulse repetition period. That's number one. 
Number two, we can decrease aliasing by decreasing the transducer frequency. When we decrease the transducer frequency, it factors into the Doppler shift equation. And when we decrease the frequency, we decrease the Doppler shift. And finally, increasing the Doppler angle will play into the Doppler shift and it will decrease the Doppler shift. Again, three things that we can change to improve aliasing or resolve aliasing. Increase pulse repetition frequency, decrease transducer frequency, and increase the Doppler angle. And again, be careful that pulse repetition frequency is the opposite of pulse repetition period. What is the determinant of axial resolution. So axial resolution is inversely related to spatial pulse length. I've seen some online referencing saying axial resolution related to spatial pulse length, which is correct, but it's an inverse relationship, meaning you improve axial resolution by decreasing spatial pulse length. I could not find an equation for the relationship. One source mentioned one divided by two times spatial pulse length determines the axial resolution. I don't think they'll go this far. The key thing to know is axial resolution is inversely proportional to spatial pulse length. How can we improve elevational resolution? The key thing that you need to know about elevation and resolution that it depends on the crystal thickness of the probe. The thinner the crystal thickness of the probe, the higher the elevational resolution. And the probe that has a high elevational resolution is a 1.5D transducer. How can we see elevational resolution? Basically, you see everything in focus between a point that is at the skin and a deeper tissue all appear in focus, but it's very hard to test it with a, like a dynamic picture of ultrasound. You need to know that basically 1.5 transducer will improve elevation or resolution. Let's talk about detector contrast. The typical question about detector contrast comes in two flavors, either knowing what the term detector contrast means. So detector contrast basically means how the detector reacts to incident x-rays. So when a detector is hit with x-rays, how it responds, that is detector contrast. The other flavor and more common style question is giving you a detector contrast curve for both film screen as well as flat panel detector or indirect panel detector. The key thing to know is flat screen detector have a nonlinear response. They have what we call the toe and shoulder, meaning it will respond linearly to a certain point. And after that, the response will flatten out and increasing X-ray or increasing exposure will not change the contrast in the image. Same in the beginning, low level of x-rays will not change the contrast. On contrast to that, a digital detector will have a linear response, meaning even if it gets hit with very few x-rays, it will be able to provide contrast to the image. And even if you flood the system with x-rays, you still get contrast because it's able to distinguish between very small differences in energy in the x-rays. So, 
key thing to remember, a digital detector has a linear response curve. A film screen detector will have a toe and shoulder, so it will will have a plateau after a peak of x-rays. What is the effect of increasing anode angle on focal spot and heel effect? Now, we're not going to go into too much of detail how the anode angle works, but here we're talking about the effective anode angle, and increasing the anode angle would increase the effective focal spot. Again, increasing the anode angle increases the effective focal spot, and increasing the anode angle will decrease the heel effect. Again, decrease heel effect with increasing the anode angle and increase the effective focal spot when we increase the anode angle. Now, a question that they can ask about the heel effect, the more you have a heel effect, that means there is a difference between the concentration of x-rays hitting the anode side and the cathode side, and there is always a higher concentration of x-rays at the cathode side than the anode side. A common question that is asked regarding electronic magnification and how will affect air karma. So air karma is describing deterministic effect, like basically skin necrosis. When we're trying to use electronic magnification, in order to do that, we'll increase the x-rays because technically with electronic magnification will result in culmination and that leads to magnification. So we increase our karma and this is true for both image intensifier as well as direct and indirect flat panel detector. We increase our karma. Again, for electronic magnification, we increase our karma when we increase magnification because of culmination that happened. Now, what is the effect on Kerma area product? The Kerma area product relates this relationship, meaning the electronic magnification into cancer risk. So in electronic magnification, we said we're forced to use culmination. So it answers the same thing. What happens when we culminate to the air Kerma and Kerma area product. We previously said that air Kerma increases for both flat panel detector as well as image intensifiers, as well as indirect flat panel detector. Now, the increase in image intensifier is much greater than flat panel detector, but still there is an increase in air Kerma for flat panel detector. Now, how does this relationship influence Kerma area product? Kerma area product decreases for both. Why does it decrease? Because Kerma area product relates to the amount of area of body that is exposed to radiation. And when we culminate, area is basically one, two dimension multiplied with each other. So the decrease in area is much greater than the increase in radiation. And because of that, Kerma area product is less, which means when we culminate or use electronic magnification, we have decreased cancer risk, but increased deterministic risk, so increased tissue burn or skin necrosis or hair falling from our imaging. So in the prior two question, we discussed electronic magnification and culmination effect on air Kerma as well as Kerma area product. Now, 
I'm asking about geometric magnification. Now, what happened when we use geometric magnification and fluoroscopy to air kerma as well as kerma area product? What you have to understand is how do we get to geometric magnification? We have two options. The equation for geometric magnification is SID over SOD. So source to image distance divided by source to object distance. Now, if we decrease source to object distance, we will get magnification, as well as we, if we keep source to object distance the same, but increase source to image distance, that also will give us magnification. Now, what option do we have typically in geometric magnification? Most commonly for geometric magnification, we increase source to image distance. If we increase source to image distance, that means we have to increase our output from the tube, which means we are increasing air kerma. So air kerma is increased, and at the same time, we're not culminating because we're using geometric magnification. So we're actually increasing the area that we're applying. So kerma area product is going to increase and air kerma is going to increase, meaning with geometric magnification, we increase the risk of developing cancer as well as the risk of developing deterministic effects such as skin necrosis. Now, the most important thing to know is that's the way we do it with increasing source to image distance. If we were to decrease source to object distance to get the magnification, that would create a different effect. I hope they don't ask it, but just to go over it, if we bring the patient closer to the source of x-ray, now we have to decrease the tube output, and that will lead to decrease air kerma and decrease kerma area product, but kerma area product would be decreased because the x-rays will travel less. Now, that's not really possible with imaging because you cannot move as much. You don't have as much leeway of moving the patient around as the ability to move the detector. So they don't typically do that. So imagine you're doing a IR procedure and you have the table set. You don't want to move the table too high or too low. So you just move the detector instead. I know this is a bit confusing. I'll recap it once again. With geometric magnification, there is no culmination applied. So because we're not applying culmination, we're increasing air kerma, just like with any other electronic magnification. But the downside here, because we're not applying culmination, we are increasing kerma area product. And that's true for both image intensifier as well as flat panel detector or indirect flat panel detector.